Hey guys, it's Casey, and today is January 9th. Now, not only is that a special day because there's a podcast dropping that you're going to love, but it's also the very first day of our live spring collective. We are starting tonight with a whole new group of people. We start at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, and if you are still on the fence, let me just tell you this. You will absolutely love studying after you study with us. So if you need a drop-in to kind of figure out what we're all about, you can do that over at our website, or there's still time to sign up for our Spring Collective. So we start tonight, and we go for 10 weeks, meeting every Monday and Wednesday night at 6.30 Central Standard Time, taking you through the entire task list to prepare you for your BCABA or BCBA exam. We make it funny AF. Trust me, if you know anything about Liat from this podcast, She's the funny one. I'm the smart one. So join us. Head over to www.studynotesava.com. See you tonight. Love you, mean it. Study Notes ABA. ABA and a little X rated away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. And we are here with episode one. 130. Casey, what do you have for us today? 130. Our guest today is my hero. Okay, I'm going to change that up because episode 130. You use that rhyme every time, bro. Thanks, dude. <laughs> you know what? I'm get, It's getting hard out here with these upper level... Um, episodes. You know what the good thing is that or we're you know still what going. it's not upper it's not upper level. You mean the fact that every now and then it ends with a every 10 it ends with a o. <laughs> yes. Zero. It's exactly it. And hero is the only thing I can rhyme with zero. So, let's get in. I want you Liat robot voice to tell us what are the behavior principles we will be covering. Okay, let me go get the robot one sec. The behavioral principles we will be covering today are functional analysis, functional behavioral assessment, act as in acceptance, commitment, therapy, RFT as in relational frame theory, operant, respondent, extinction, selectionism, verbal behavior, direct instruction, behavioral contrast, reinforcement, Stimulus classes, stimulus equivalents, repertoires, EOAO, robot stops working when the list gets too long. <laughs> we are so excited to be here. We are also coming in hot because we were very proud of ourselves that we had a lot of podcasts in the bank. So it always happens. We feel all proud of ourselves that we're all ahead of the game. And then suddenly one day it's like, oh, my God, we we need to get more all lined up. So we're back feeling energized, excited for this podcast. And to get us really excited to be back, I think we need some reinforcement. So, Casey, if you could drop us a review and preferably that one that someone said something nice about me. No, I save those for just telling you. I like the only ones about me. No, but what's exciting is that it's the new year, and this is our first episode in the new year, and we're coming in hot with probably one of my favorite guests of all times. But before we get started and introduce him, I'm going to read a review that I love, and I just want to tell everyone, I know Leah is shameless about asking for reviews, but she doesn't check, she's not the one who checks them, so like every time I go to check, I'm like, I build myself up to like 
practice some like psychological flexibility if it's like a negative one because we get those too and that's fine and usually we read them but this one was awesome and I'm so excited to share it. It came in from A Bony One and the title was simply the best five stars. I've been studying with Snaba informally for some time and recently purchased the four month cram. I'm getting ready to sit for the BCBA exam in March. I have, I have been able to apply the concepts learned in multiple areas of my life. However, my wife runs and hides when I try and teach her ABA. Thanks for making ABA apply to the world and my life around me. Love, Al. So, you know oh, what? I love that. We, we always joke that when you once you see it life through a behavioral lens, it's hard to not annoy everyone around you. So, sounds like Sounds like you and your wife need to pair some of this ABA stuff with positive reinforcers, you know? Maybe tell her that. <laughs> totally. I'm sure she'll love that. Tell her that. <laughs> okay. Everyone, listen up. So we know as your test prep trainers that the new chapters in Cooper 19 and 20 on stimulus equivalents, non-equivalents, and RFT are wild and a little bit mind-blowing. But today's guest is going to break down some of that really crazy stuff that it talks about. And after you listen, you should head over to our website and get our new amazing mini mock on all of these topics, stimulus equivalents, non-equivocal relations, and RFT. It comes with the best feedback I think I've ever seen, and it's only $19.99. Head over to www.studynotesaba.com and get your mini mock so you can become an expert on this shit just like our guest is. All right. Anyways, let's get in and talk a little bit about our guest before we bring him on. Let's talk about Dr. Thomas Zabo, Zabo, Zebo, Subo. He's a faculty member in the hybrid master's degree program for professional behavior analysis at FIT, site director at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and an internationally recognized ACT trainer. He's also a board-certified behavior analyst a little later in life, which we'll get to as well. And he's a graduate of the University of Nevada, 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 Reno. <laughs> he's got to study under Stephen Hayes, which I cannot wait to learn about. And over the past 10 years, he's focused his practice on teaching people ways to ignite behavior flexibility buzzword, in their personal lives and with others in clinical practice, schools, boardrooms, shop floors, and community centers. So with his students, Tom investigates behavioral flexibility training and clinical RFT, which is relational frame theory. And he's been published multiple times and has several books. I cannot wait to dive into your brain. So Tom, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. I, I got to get you an updated version of my body. Yes, you do. I can redo it later. <laughs> five years old, uh, but but basically still me. I'm not at FIT anymore. I'm sort of contingent faculty at FIT, but I'm currently working with Capella University. Okay, nice. That's another online one, right? Wait, is that where Ryan works? Yeah. 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 Ryan O'Donnell? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dude, we just spent about 80 hours with him recording professional videos for our study prep. Nice, nice. It was pretty insane, but yeah, that's cool. So first talk a little bit about, I know you talked to me before about how you did find behavior analysis a little bit later in life, but how you had always kind of seen it 
with direct instruction and other things that you had been learning. So tell us a little bit about that. I have a very, very weird relationship to behavior analysis, or maybe it's the perfect relationship to behavior analysis. Because I was a pretty average kid growing up in New York City. Um, And everyone that I knew was learning to read using SRA reading cards. SRA reading cards broke skills down into phonics and from phonics into single words and from single words into clusters of words into finding the meaning of a sentence, picking out details of the sentence, comparing and contrasting things within forming conclusions, drawing inferences. If you think about it, this is the rudiments of a behavior analytic direct instruction based curriculum in reading. And in fact, SRA reading cards were developed by Sigrid Engelman. So Mm -hmm. my my proficiency with reading is really based on uh, background in behavior analysis. What did you call it? Drill and kill? Yeah. So, you know, when I went to UNR, I, much, much later in my life, I wanted to become a teacher. And I didn't go to UNR. I went to, to New York University um, for undergraduate and for my first graduate degree. And at New York University, they were teaching the whole language approach. They were teaching in a constructionist Mm -hmm. educational philosophy model. So we were reading all the greats of that era. Frank Smith, Louise Rosenblatt, Jimmy Moffat. It was a fertile ground for learning how to change up instruction from row seating to learning stations, from teacher-driven instruction to student-driven instruction. Mm -hmm. You were writing to read and reading to write. You were publishing within the classroom, conferencing with other student writers. It was all very sexy, and I just loved it. And what they were saying was the one thing that you never want to do is drill and kill. Drill and kill education <laughs> destroys motivation for learning, the innate motivation that we all have for learning. You can hear all of the assumptions that are counter to behavior analysis. That's what I learned in school. That's not what I found when I hit the pavement. After that, I went to be a teacher. And I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I lived on the south side of Williamsburg. Los Hures is very much a Puerto Rican and Dominican community. And at the time, in the early 1980s, it was pound for pound, it was the poorest neighborhood in the city of New York. And I lived there for almost 10 years total. I was a uh, rock climber. I am a rock climber. I've been a rock climber my entire life. And I would boulder on the escarpment wall of the Williamsburg Bridge. So all the kids knew me when I showed up to teach at the local junior high school. You know, people would walk up and they would like, like say, you know, 
<laughs> you know, that's whack. You know, I could do that with my eyes closed. And we'd say, come on up and try it. And they'd come up and they'd climb on the wall and they'd fall up and they'd say, yo, that's cool. Yo, keep up the good work, Spider-Man. And, Spider-Man. You know, and then and then I showed up at school and they're, oh, wow, mountain climber, you going to be our teacher? I was like, yep. <laughs> so, uh, but um, I created all of the things that they taught me at NYU. I've created this vibrant, learner-driven classroom. And my students who were truants, they were kids who were three and four years behind in reading and in math. They were kids who there was no room for them as special ed. So the school didn't want them in mainstream because they brought down their standardized test scores, mm-hmm. put them into the special room with me called Gates to Learning. It was a program that the city initiated to help kids who were three and four years behind bump up their literacy skills and get back into mainstream. And I had these kids all day long. These are kids who had not come to school for many years. They came to my class. They loved what my class was about. And it was, you know, it was a room full of love and learning and, the only problem was was that a quarter of the year, a quarter of the way through the year, they took their standardized tests and they actually weren't learning. I don't know what they were learning, but they weren't learning. <laughs> they were learning a lot. You were, of- you were just pairing with them for a little while. <laughs> like four months of pairing. <laughs> a lot of pairing. Uh, no, I mean, I thought that we were really learning, but apparently not. And uh, at least not on, a, 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 on what would be reflected in a standardized test. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I lived in a neighborhood. It was pretty easy for me to walk down the block and not get attacked. And uh, so I went to their homes and you know what it would be like, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a white man and I was in my <laughs> early twenties. And so I looked like a white man in his early twenties and I'd walk down the block and people would yell five Oh, five I was a police officer, you know, and, and but they knew me, and it was kind of a joke. But that happened frequently enough when I went to homes. And when I went to kids' homes, their parents would always say, you should come to church. And so one day I did. I went to church. A bunch of my students were there. And uh, there was a teacher that took a bunch of the kids out into a a special room just for the kids. And the teacher was teaching them and the teacher did this, said basically this, like, I have a question. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna ask you this question, but before I ask you the question, this is the answer. This is the answer you're gonna say. Everybody, what's the answer you're gonna say? Great, here's the question, what's the answer? Great, left eye of the room. Here's the question, what's the answer? Awesome, first row. Here's the question, what's the answer? Great, here's the next question I'm gonna ask you. The next answer that you're gonna give me and then she'd start putting them together and putting, you know, she went through this whole thing and I was like, of course. That's why they can't learn. Because they've been exposed to drill and kill education all their lives, of course they can't learn. And then we left. We went outside and my kids and I are walking down the block and I'm like, so what did you learn in there? And I was like, sure, that they didn't learn anything. And they started like telling me this amazing story. So there's this guy, his name's Moses. Moses is tripping around in the desert and he sees this burning bush. 
who says, oh, that's really strange. And then somebody starts talking to him from behind the bush, and it turns out to be God. And God starts talking to Moses and telling Moses, dude, you got to do this. You got to go talk to Pharaoh, and you got to tell Pharaoh that you're taking your people out of Egypt. And Moses says, oh, no, 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 no. You got the wrong man. I, I ain't going to do that. Like, maybe you want my brother Aaron. That He could do that, not me. And God says, nope, you the man, you got to go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses gets into this big battle with God. And eventually God wins and Moses does the deed. Wow. Now, but wait a minute. Like, mm -hmm. here's my students who I was sure didn't get anything out of that lesson telling me this story in, in that kind of vibrant, dynamic, energized way. I wanted what they had. The next day I went back into my classroom and I started figuring out, okay, well, I can break down reading that same way and start doing with them what their Sunday school teacher was doing with Bible stories. And it was when I started doing that and basically taking everything that I had learned from New York University and slowly moving it off my table and started doing what they told me not to do, which was drill and kill education, mm. that my learners started improving. And by the end of the year, I had a sizable number of kids graduate and move on into mainstream. So I knew that that instruction strategy worked. And I didn't know at the time, but that was also direct instruction, Carnine and Engelman. That was rudiments of applied behavior analysis. So much later on, I mean, much later on, like 25 years later, when I discovered behavior analysis, it clicked like nothing. Like that's my life. You're like, this is what I found in that Sunday school. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, when, so here's what happened. I, um, the public schools are trying to kill children. It was a grim environment. I went to teach in a private school for a couple of years and private schools are trying to kill teachers. So mm. I figured, okay, I'll come back to education when they fix the schools. Apparently that is- That still hasn't happened. Yeah, that's not the plan. Uh, I, the plan, the schools work exactly the way they're intended. The schools work perfectly. They give a couple of people in every class or in every cluster of a hundred students the tools to become mm -hmm. the next leaders and shapers who challenge authority and question the way things are done. A couple of people in the middle of the distribution of scores are the people who are trained to manage people to follow the rules and a bulk of people down at the bottom of the distribution of scores to follow rules, to sit in their seats, to raise their hands, to not speak out. And so the schools do what they're intended to do. At any rate, I, now tell us about. I know that you have a really great story about how you kind of you did something really great with a client who was in a wheelchair. Yeah, I don't remember, but kind of like led you into getting into the behavior analysis field because you saw that it worked. Yeah, so you know, I, I mean, I, I was pretty sure that uh, I wasn't going to be able to make it in the schools, so I became a climbing guide, and I was a climbing guide for twelve years. And at some point I moved out to Colorado and I opened up my own guide service and uh, I wanted to give back to the community. 
And so I took side work a couple of days of work working in intellectual and developmental disabilities. And uh, I went to my very first day at work and was assigned a client who was going to be my primary. And she was out in the community, so I didn't get to meet her until the afternoon. So I got to sit around and read her book. And her book says that she's in a wheelchair, that she has um, a mild intellectual disability, that she uh, speaks very fluent English, and she's learning Spanish, and she likes to do math problems in her head, and she has boundary issues. She is uh, physically aggressive. She grabs people's genitals. And also that she's bowel incontinent and she has no physiological reasons for being bowel incontinent. So I'm reading through all this stuff and then they get home and I get to meet her for the first time. And the staff person who's been out in the community with her says, you know, she had a bowel movement a couple of hours ago and we haven't had time to change her. You're her primary. You should change her. So I say, okay. And I, uh, you know, I go to the, get a bunch of rags and uh, get them warm with, with water. And I lay down a chuck and I help her out of the wheelchair and lay her down and uh, then start uh, cleaning her up. And she starts digging and smearing and I'm doing my best judo moves to like, you know, keep myself clean. And the other staff people are kind of giggling. They think this is very funny. And I'm like, this is not funny. It's not funny because first of all, this is a verbal adult woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm provide, I've never met her before and I'm providing intimate care. But second of all, it wasn't funny because I began to, Think about the fact that she has rich verbal skills and no one has taught her to poop on the toilet. And I asked them, like, you know, how come nobody's teaching her to poop on the toilet? And they just kind of giggle and say, you try. So I said, okay. But I didn't know anything about potty training. So I go to the bookstore. I go to Barnes & Noble. And... Uh, well, they don't have Fox and Hazrin. They look it up. They can see that that's out there, but they don't have it. But they do have this book, Behavior Analysis for Lasting Change. And uh, it was an expensive book, but it was yeah, it cool. <laughs> Roy G. Mayer and, um, uh, and Beth Silger-Azarov. Uh, Michelle was Wallace wasn't part of the team yet. It was the first edition of the book. Now it's got rock climbers on the cover, so it's got to be a cool book. But back then it mm -hmm. didn't. And it was, uh, and it, it was a very different style of writing in the earlier editions of the book. It was very practitioner-friendly. You didn't have to be a graduate student in behavior analysis to be able to read it and understand what was going on. It was a very, very readable book, and it just clicked for me like nothing else. It just totally clicked. And I started doing what, not only the potty training routines, but I also started thinking, well, like, so this woman's aggression, hmm, what could be the function of this aggression? Let me try a couple of things and see. And I did a functional assessment of her aggression and I found what it was related to. It seemed to be related to attention. So I gave attention contingent upon pushing in the bathroom and 
very rapidly what happened was she started pooping on the toilet when I was working and not <laughs> when anyone else was working. And so we started to see this really, really strong behavioral contrast. And that was reaffirming for me, but then like kind of other people were pissed off about it. So, okay, can you teach us what you're doing? And so I taught them how to do it. Here's what happened. Her entire life changed. Because imagine. if you think about what happens when somebody is in a wheelchair and soils themselves and nobody's willing to change them, they get, get really serious sores. Yeah. And she had the worst sores all over her bottom. Ugh. Those cleaned up. And when those cleaned up, guess what else cleaned up? Her, her happiness happened. level, her behavior. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the aggression. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, we're yeah. gone. And now she stopped being aggressive. And when she stopped being aggressive, people wanted to be around her more. And when people wanted to be around her more, they helped her in the bathroom more. So everything changed in her life. Her mom was already getting a PhD in education and transferred over to having a specialization in behavior analysis as a result. That's really amazing. Yeah, it's and such great, like right? a really great like example of social significance yeah. in something that, you know, when I worked with adults that was that at age 30 still didn't know how to wipe, you know, it seemed like no one else, no one wanted to teach them. Like, oh, well, they, you know, they've been doing this their whole life and that's just how they do it. They just, you know, I don't know what they do. Maybe use your hand. It's like, well, okay, this is really important and it's also dangerous to their health. So it's something we should be targeting. As well as, well as an individual's dignity, you know, like totally. you think about it. If this person did have like a high verbal repertoire or whatever you were saying. And I mean, regardless, even if the individual does not, you know, you have to really humanize whoever you're working with and realize like, well, would I want this? Like, do you think this is what I want to be? Like, I have this new individual working with me, like wiping, me, you know? So it's just, and I mean, I just think it's a good opportunity if anyone is listening and you do work somewhere and people are like, oh no, I don't want to deal with that case or, you know, or to have that philosophic doubt as well. Like, well, why is no one doing X or Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you might be like, well, it seems so simple to even try do this, but it might be that pragmatic approach and just you questioning. So that's awesome. It's a, a really good point, Leah. You know, um, a couple of years later, uh, I was I had completely decided I'm going to become a behavior analyst, and I went to Western Michigan University for a year to take the core undergraduate curriculum and be a research assistant in a couple of labs. And I was an RA in Linda LeBong's lab. And Linda LeBong didn't just have an autism clinic. She also had a behavioral gerontology clinic. And inside of the behavioral gerontology clinic, we were teaching human service providers to do behavior analysis with the elders in their care. And one of the things that human service providers basically did was we, we clean them up when they're in the bathroom. And there was, you know, no one ever thought that these elders could actually relearn how to take care of themselves. And uh, that's what we taught them how to do. Yeah. 
I think that is, I worked with a lot of RBTs that would come in. They were like, you know, 19 year old college girls in, you know, my clinic had, you know, older men, you know, with, you know, very severe intellectual disabilities. And they'd be like, well, I'm definitely not doing bathroom stuff. I'm definitely just so like, it's like, well, then I think you're in the wrong place because not only do we need to help, but we need to teach and teach them and, and not make them feel uncomfortable. So, but I think that also comes with experience. Like, I don't blame those young college girls. I would have been like, ah, <laughs> but still. So now Liat always says to me, and she is, <laughs> we just recorded a lot of videos and she said it probably a hundred times. I know nothing about ACT or RFT. Like she could not tell me the very first thing about it. And so, hey, that we yeah, have you here. I'm, a, I'm allowed to say that about myself. You cannot say it for <laughs> me. So, let let me, allow me to ask for anyone listening right now. Somehow, I managed to teach a class on it, but I just feel like, you know, <laughs> it is. Well, actually, I have to tell you. After we had Ryan in town, Ryan O'Donnell in town, he told us about that one article that was like groundbreaking, and when he was talking about like more than just the basic A, B, and C. I, mm-hmm. I don't know what it, what I, you probably know I'll what I'm referring him. to. Yeah. I, I wasn't out there when you guys were having that combo, but I'll ask him. Um, But I, for anyone listening, also we have a lot of people who are not in the field of behavior analysis. What is relational frame theory? What is ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and how are they related? Hmm. That's an awesome question. Let, let me start with, with, with ACT just because I was kind okay. of – like kind of on, on this train of like like how I got to Western and from Western to University of Nevada, or, you know, um, mm-hmm. for 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 twelve years I was a climbing guide, and periodically I would take work with Outward Bound, and sometimes I would go on the twenty eight day trips into the wilderness. And uh, when I was on the East Coast, I liked to work with New York City Outward Bound. I don't New know York if I told City. you I did this. Did I ever tell you that I? Oh, you didn't. Yeah, my dad sent me on a 28-day one. Oh uh, which, which Outward Bound? Do you remember? North Carolina and the Appalachian North Mountains. Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So I did a little bit of work with North Carolina. I did a little <laughs> bit of work with Maine. I did a little bit of work. And you know what? Outward Bound basically uses the wilderness as a giant metaphor for all things important in life, when you go rock mm-hmm. climbing, when you go orienteering or backpacking without a map, with, with just a map and a compass and no trail, when you go whitewater uh, kayaking on an outward bound trip, you are in the evening after having had these experiences, processing them, debriefing, talking about things like communication, trust, responsibility, risk-taking in a healthy way, risk-taking in an unhealthy way, all things important. The things that get in your way in real life. So the conversation turns to how does this apply to what happens in math class? How does this apply to your relationship with your dad and mom? How does this apply to what you do at your job? And in particular, when I worked with New York City Outward Bound, I had this really strong experience of working with kids that were really tough. And I had been a graffiti artist as a kid, so I related to them intensely. You've and done it all. You've really done it all. 
I've been a graffiti artist for a long time, like for six years. And most of my friends who were graffiti artists kind of stayed with it throughout their entire year. I got really lucky. I had uh, some teachers who kind of nudged me to take writing from writing graffiti to writing poetry and short stories. And that's how I got interested in teaching because I wanted to give back. But anyway, so as I was doing work with Howard Bound periodically that I would get asked by other outfits that were doing outdoor adventure therapy and outdoor experiential education to work with them. So it was a, it was a pretty strong source of income for me. When I discovered behavior analysis and started reading the behavior analytic literature to see where I wanted to go to grad school, I came across the work of Steve Hayes and Linda Hayes. And they were asking really weird questions. They were asking, so what are we really thinking about when we think about thinking? I mean, what? Who, who talks that way? But that was, that was the springboard for me diving in deeper and reading more than just the work that they were doing in behavior analysis and reading what Steve was doing in clinical psychology. And he had developed over the span of 30 years by that point, acceptance and commitment therapy, which made use of metaphors physicalized metaphors for all things important in life, trust, responsibility, etc. In other words, I began to see that I could use what I had developed as a skill set in outdoor adventure programming inside of applied behavior analysis. And I wrote to Steve and, and uh, he didn't write back. I had no background in psychology. Of course, he didn't write back. But I ended up going to Western for a year, take the core undergraduate curriculum, and then I got to go where I wanted to go. And I went to UNR and I told Steve that I wanted to learn how to do acts so I could develop an iteration that was consistent with the scope of practice of applied behavior analysts. So in essence, what is ACT? It is a way of helping people to address things that are really difficult through metaphor, through visualization. Now, it's a little deeper than that too, because if you think about like, Leah, your facial expression we were talking about on that 20 day, day Albert Brown thing was like distasteful. Uh, it was hard, right? You know, I, was, I was sent, it's more because I was sent as my dad's like, you're a materialistic teenager. You need to learn some things. You're going to go to Outward Bound. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll pack all this stuff in my bag. And then you get there. They're like, ha you're only taking this, this, and this. Yeah. And I was yeah, like, yeah, but it, yeah. it, it did change me, I have to say. Well, it's, 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 um, it's exposure therapy. So uh, Outward Bound and ACT share that. It is exposure. Exposure to difficult things. And exposure works on the basis of extinction. Respondent extinction and operant extinction. Respondent extinction in the sense that things that are truly aversive to you, like if you grew up in the city, like just seeing two or three trees together, oh, there's a conspiracy there. Like, got to avoid that. Uh, so it like brings up all of these like sweating and trembling and uh, 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 
stomach heart racing yeah, yeah. heart racing and, and and stomach turning and all, all of that this is making but, sense now yeah i like but, complain but the more you the hang out with time by the yeah, end yeah right right you had that experience but, but the more you hang out with those trees and and do the things and you you the more you, i wanted to like meet a guy who lived in a van when i came back <laughs> and like i just want to find a guy who like lives in a van and like but I went there like <laughs> a big beard and <laughs> as a dog, <laughs> right? Like, like so. So some of those those uh, those uh, respondent behaviors begin to uh, happen less frequently over time. That is respondent extinction. And the other thing that happens is that the thing that you would typically do, which is run away and not approach those things, that also gets placed on extinction. You do the things, and as you do the things, you contact positive reinforcement. And as you contact positive reinforcement, your world expands. Your repertoire expands. As your repertoire expands, you have more options. ACT is about increasing your response variability, increasing your repertoire, thus giving you more options for how to proceed as things get tough in your life. You can move away from things that are difficult. At times, that's the right thing to do, but you can also approach them. And more times than not, when you approach things that are really difficult, you find something that you didn't know you already had. That's act in a nutshell. I've never heard it told like that. And that I was I was just gonna say, I'm I, you know, as because we are a test prep, you know, our exposure for students is what is in Cooper book. And I haven't totally read this because I've just done more research on act through you know, some podcasts in internet, but they describe it. And I'm so happy to have you here because this description is, it's an evidence-based behavior therapy that counts RFT among its influences and is designed to help people better contact their reinforcers. And that's really all it says about it. So the way you just said it is, you know, in such- I, I never had it in any sort of context. That's also why I always say I don't understand it because like, and I'm, I'm so happy you said that too, because Everything we do at Study Notes is teaching things through real life examples. So like when it comes, I'd be like, I'm not teaching the RFT class. Shit. I don't know any examples of that because like it was like just this definition. But when you talk about it now, I'm like, now I'm going to have to like apply it to like me doing Outward Bound and like suddenly being comfortable and one, you know, <laughs> exposure. It's, it's fascinating how there's like that respondent and that operant. Uh, extinction and wow. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. So uh, a lot, a lot of the activities in ACT involve exactly that. Like we're aiming, and and I think that one of the things that's difficult for all therapists. I used to think it was just applied behavior analysts have difficulty applying ACT because of this, but as it turns out. Most people go through grad school to become clinical psychologists or clinical social workers, and the bulk of their exposure is to cognitive behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. And in CBT, very similar to applied behavior analysis, you're basically solution-focused, mm-hmm. expert-driven. You're the person with a plan, and you're helping the person that you're working with begin to apply these tried-and-true methods to behaving more successfully. There's a cognitive element in CBT, but basically the behavioral element is the the most salient part of it. And so people learning ACT 
after all of their training in CBT, have the same experience as people learning ACT after all their training in ABA, which is great. I just got to like, like get them to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's not ACT. So what is ACT? Yeah, ACT involves sitting with the person as they struggle and struggling right. alongside them. And that's hard. That's really hard, right? Because we're so used to being the fix it. We're so yeah, used just... to being the person with a plan. And... and we're so used to being in control. And, you know, if I don't have an exact plan that I control, you know, what else, what could go wrong? Everything in my mind. And when you're doing act well, you are letting go of that control and modeling letting go of that control and letting the person that you're working with sit with the problem and not jumping in with a plan or a solution. It's when they get sick and tired of being sick and tired that they begin to say, well, what if I do this? And the answer is, I don't know. Let's try. So I guess I have a few questions on like the perspective taking, the didactic perspective taking, and um, maybe a little bit on how that works or how it helps being able to take other perspectives. Well, okay. Let me, can I answer that in a roundabout way? hundred percent. Because because originally you asked about RFT and didactic framing or perspective taking in relation to person place and time is one of the relational framing families that have been investigated, but there's many others. And I think that people get confused about RFT. People get confused about how much RFT they have to know to do ACT. And my guess is that you're already doing RFT inside of your practice. You're already doing ACT inside of your practice. You just don't know it. You haven't called it that. But in essence, what is RFT is important to be able to answer before we get to didactic framing and how that plays in or perspective taking, how that plays mm-hmm. into act. If you think about what, what you're doing, if you were to pick any two things on your desk, like I got, uh, I got a cup of coffee here and I got a remote control here. I can ask you, about these two things that are physically very different from each other. One's a cup of coffee, one's a remote control. Which one is more important in the context of uh, giving a slideshow presentation? Yeah, you got it. Very good. Yeah, which one is more important for getting your thoughts rolling really quickly? You see, you're capable of relating these things in terms of what's more important very easily when you're given a context in which to do so. As the context changes, the relationship between the two, which one is more important, that relationship changes. This is relational framing in a nutshell. You're relating two things that are physically dissimilar on the basis of an arbitrary cue, more than or less than, more important or less important than. And that's relational framing. I was just going to say real quickly, I feel like this also would go along with a lot of like motivating operations in the sense that in one second, that remote's going to mean more to you or be more important based on whether, you know, 
you haven't found it and you're looking for it for a long time. So there's an EO for the remote or you've watched two hours of Netflix and you don't really need it anymore. And there's an AO for the remote, less important, more important. Like they all go together, right? Yeah. That's a conditioned motivating operation, but what makes relational framing particularly useful to us as a species, if you think about it, natural selection prepares us for a world which is 500,000 years in our past history. We are today, as a species, adapted to be susceptible to reinforcement by sugar, salt, and sexual contact. 500,000 years ago, we needed a lot of sugar in our diet for fast energy so that we could run away from predators and catch the things that we were going to eat. We also needed a lot of salt in our diets because we needed to run for long periods of time before we have access to food again. And we needed to have sexual contact because half of our offspring died off due to plagues and other things. Today, we sit in front of our computers, I type in IN and all of a sudden Instacart pops up on my browser and I tell them I want these food items delivered to my door and I want it delivered within half an hour and all of a sudden I go to the door and there's my Instacart order. I don't have to like, you know, run for long hours. I don't have to catch prey and all that stuff Mm -hmm. that I had to do. And our babies basically survive these days and we're overpopulating the planet. So we are highly adapted to a world which is long gone. Yeah. That's natural selection. Behavioral selection functions very similarly. Selection by consequences prepares us for yesterday. We do today what we do because yesterday what we did worked well. We do today pretty much exactly what we did yesterday on the basis of how well it worked for us. And we continue to do today what worked well for us a little while ago. In other words, if you think about it, natural selection and behavioral selection work by orienting us to the past. Mm -hmm. Verbal behavior, relational framing, allows us to look in the other direction, allows us to look into the future. Is it because of your past that you're able to like take relations of like understanding how it worked, something happened to you in one context. And so you're able to like relate that to a different future scenario because of your contact. Oh so my far God. as we this, know, see, this is where only... my brain starts being like, no, 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 no. I totally get it. Like, so far as we know, we're the only species that have this capability. If you think about it, like, like dolphins are really, really smart species. Um, and they do all kinds of different communication. All species uh, that are capable of operant behavior uh, engage in communication with one another. Uh, elephants have uh, honor their dead and all kinds of species um, communicate about different ways that we can use tools to capture our prey. So there's lots and lots of very advanced communication. However, dolphins, interestingly enough, with all their skillful communication, don't seem to be able to tell each other about what's going to happen in Ica Bay next fall. 
And if they did, they would be able to plan to follow the tuna in a different direction. Because what happens in Ica Bay is that the fishing community sets out nets in the fall as the tuna swim upstream. The problem for them is that dolphins following the tuna get caught in their nets and the sharpness of the dolphin's dorsal fins cut through the nets. So the fishing community goes out into the bay with clubs and they club the dolphins to death. And it's part of the rites of passage to be a young fish, fishing professional in that community. You go out into the bay and you kill lots of dolphins. You see, if dolphins were capable of planning for the future, the way it appears humans can, they would probably prepare to go a different direction and follow a different band of tuna so that they could continue to eat without going to Ica Bay. So I don't think it's, it's necessarily just because we can look to the past. Elephants look to the past. Lots of species look to the past. It's that we're capable of verbally relating about a future that hasn't yet happened and compare it to the past. That is our capacity for verbal behavior. And I want to just point this out. People like to say that, well, early RFT researchers argued that RFT is post-Skinnerian. And I, I think later on, they began to think about that and, and speak of it somewhat differently. This is an extension of Skinner. I think Skinner yes. was on this path. And That's how I feel too. Had he, had he lived long enough, he would have been. I mean, he already. If you read Skinner very carefully, like if you if you read, for example, um, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, people sometimes say, "What's values?" You know, act, people talk about values. What are values? Well, Skinner talked a lot about values. Spent like many many chapters in Science and Human Behavior walking through valuing, but he had a whole chapter specifically dedicated to values in Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And this is a really interesting thing because like if you read like the first 20 pages of the chapter, all he's, he's talking about is natural selection and he's talking about reinforcement. And so it sounds like he's saying the same thing over and over again. So you, it's easy to just put it down and say, okay, I got it next, you know, and like, I don't have to finish mm -hmm. this chapter, but he doesn't actually make his point until the end of the chapter. The point that Skinner is making is why would we do anything to prepare for the future when we're consistently being reinforced by reproducing what we did in the past? And what he's saying is that the reality is, is that if we don't start preparing for a different future than our past has prepared us for, we are likely to die out. Our species is going to self-annihilate and we may just destroy the planet in the process. That was Skinner's message, that we, we need to start using verbal behavior to prepare for a future that has not yet happened. Like, do we think Skinner was like stoned half the time like with these like concepts? Like how did he come to this? Like he had to, have been, right? 
No comment. No, I think Skinner was was far ahead uh, of. Mm-hmm. I think we were going to play catch up to Skinner for a long time to come. And I would say that, it, like, if you read Science and Human Behavior very very carefully, uh, you find nuggets that suggest that he was thinking about things and that uh, that prepared us to be able to respond to the twin pandemics. And I'm talking about George Floyd's murder and our newfound affiliation with cultural humility and uh, looking at not just systemic racism, but structural racism. You know, when I went to, to, to school, my undergraduate degrees were in uh, community activism and, and urban studies, and we talked a great deal about systemic racism. Nobody was talking about structural racism. And in recent years, you started to see people write about structural racism. And it's an interesting concept because, like, my first reaction was, what's structural racism? We've been talking about systemic racism. And, then, and if you start looking into the literature, people say that the two words are used interchangeably frequently, but they're not. Structural racism is deeper. It's, I was going to ask you. It's, it's at the cultural level. So if you think of, of interpersonal race racism as being like things that we do to each other that are discriminatory, and if you think about systemic racism, these have to do with policies and procedures that are built into the laws and the institutions that we live in. Structural racism is built into the cultural rules that we live by, whether we articulate them out loud or not, we were taught from a very early age, boys don't cry. Stick with your own kind. Mm -hmm. These rules, whether we articulate them out loud or not, serve as cultural mores. And Skinner asked us to look at these very carefully. Some of the ones that are near and dear to the American experiment, individual responsibility, freedom, are things that Skinner argued we need to look carefully at and say, under what context and for whom? And who gets reinforced when we are these things? So Skinner, I think, prepared us to do the kind of cultural analysis that we have just begun to do in the wake of George Floyd's murder that we need to keep doing and keep each other doing if we are to truly begin to evolve in a way that is self-sustaining. Would this be like checking your biases? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. exactly what it is. And, 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 and so relational friend theory provides you with the tools by which to analyze your analysis of these things, but it also gives you the tools by which to help other people begin to do that much more quickly. So if you think about what happens when your car breaks down, um, you try uh, wiggling the gear shift a little bit and uh, uh, restarting, you know, uh, the ignition key and things like this. And none of that works at that point. You pop the hood. You pop the hood 
and you figure out that, oh, the battery died. I got to get a jump. You get a jump and the battery starts working again. You start driving and recharge the battery as you're driving. Well, RFT provides you with the tools by which to jumpstart a series of different framing repertoires that include the most basic of framing repertoires, like seeing this is the same as this. In this context, my pen is the same as a pencil, is the same as a magic marker. They all function, function basically the same way in this context. In a different context, only my pen will function because a pencil is unacceptable. And then in another context, when I... In the old days, when I would go in and take a, a Pearson test and there was no computer screen, I had to have a number two pencil. It had to be a number two pencil, not a number one pencil. And a pen was unacceptable. So, you know, in some contexts, things are equal. And in some contexts, things are not equal. And uh, learning these relations begins with physical stimuli, but we then learn to be able to abstract. We, we learn that uh, things can be equal without being physically the same. So the uh, uppercase letter A is in many contexts the same as the letter A, or in other contexts, it's the same as the number one, as in the first letter mm -hmm. of the alphabet. And so we begin to extend those relationships of equivalence difference, opposition, hierarchy, form feature class, you know, things are, this is part of this, and this is the, the box into which I put all of these things. Well, all of those relations, we initially learn through physical similarities and differences and ultimately learn that they can be abstracted out. We can learn to respond to their abstracted qualities. But when you start thinking about perspective, what you're talking about is what the Greeks referred to as Aristotelian unity. So Aristotle said the reason why the Greek plays work so well. Do you ever like? Do you ever see like like um, Sophocles, uh, Oedipus, Oedipus Rex? You remember Oedipus? I remember from one of my classes, a different parts, but I. I forget all the Greek stuff. So. Yeah, he was this awesome guy. He slept with his mother and, and killed his like Oedipus, com Oedipus Complex came from. Yeah, Oedipus Complex. The Oedipus Complex is you want to kill your father and sleep with your mother. Well, that's what he did. He killed his father and he slept with his mother. Awesome guy. Yeah, woohoo. <laughs> just like you, except not. If you watch him, you watch the play. And it happens all inside of this tight unity of time, place, and action. You begin to have this cathartic experience. You empathize with him. And you begin to recognize, wow, that could be me. And you begin to recognize that he suffered from hubris, from arrogance, from excessive pride. And then you begin to see that could be me and I can definitely relate. It doesn't have to be me. Maybe that was me. That's not me now. It's not the me I want to be. This is relational framing 
about your own perspective of yourself. And if you then learn to extend that to other people, it's not that she is a this or he is a that. It's that she behaved this way and he behaved that way. But that doesn't make them what they are. It's just what they did. From a behavior analytic perspective, from a Skinnerian perspective, this makes great sense. Skinner said, what is a self? A self is a mode of action in context. That is, if you see me all the time at 5 p.m., 20 minutes before dinner's on the table, you see me a particular way. I'm a cranky person. If you only see me after I get done with my uh, my dinner and I've had a drink and I'm sitting around all happy, you see me as a very happy, jovial person. And Skinner talked about how Ourselves, our multiple selves come into conflict at certain times. Like one day I was getting onto the subway with my parents and we were going to see a concert at Lincoln Center in New York City. And we're going down the escalator. And who should come up the escalator? My graffiti crew. <laughs> Oh no, I'm like, I'm trying to make myself really small. They're like, yo, Pep, what's up? Yo, you gonna come bombing with us? We're going bombing at midnight. <laughs> and there was no escape. <laughs> like, I'm like stuck on this escalator. <laughs> and my parents look at me and they're like, who are you? <laughs> well, that was my different modes of self. My modes of action coming into conflict with one another. Well, RFT just extends that a little bit and provides us with some tools by which to examine this unity of time, place, and action that Aristotle wrote about, which is the, the, what Aristotle said, this is, this is how drama works. This is how we learn from drama and from metaphor. We learn through this cathartic experience of empathy that occurs when we experience ourselves as someone else. And then we're able to see ourselves as ourselves in different contexts. And we're able to see other people in other contexts. Behavior analysis begins with a very different assumption than personality theory. Personality theory assumes that people are essentially this way or that way. Behavior analysis does not start with that assumption. We don't start with the idea that I am essentially this way or that way, but that my experience provides the context in which in these circumstances, I behave this way, and in those circumstances, a different way. So really, this is, a, this is very much grounded and rooted inside of a behavior analytic worldview, and it is just an extension of procedures by which we analyze time and place and action. I want to, before we wrap up, I want to, this is one of the biggest takeaways for me, which is why... We haven't really done a podcast on ACT or FT because I wanted to find someone who was really reputable and could, you know, break it down behaviorally as well because I know it gets a little bit teetering on the mentalism side. But aren't you working on something like a 
kind of like a checklist or a behavioral like breakdown or can you talk about that or no? Uh, well, I can. Um, my book comes out, um, Learning Act for uh, Behavior Analysts. Okay, that's what I was it's thinking. the short yeah. title. I don't remember. The actual title is clunky and weird, <laughs> but, but that's basically what it is. And, and uh, um, that comes out online in the spring and hard copy later on in 2023, mid-2023. Mid uh, and, and and I and I walk through a couple of different things inside of that text. One is a way to very rapidly, very quickly do a descriptive functional assessment of the six act repertoires that could be getting in the way, that could be um, stopping you from doing the things that are going to contact positive reinforcement that's effective. I also walk you through a procedure for doing an analog functional analysis. My lab has been developing this for a couple of years and uh, we've been refining. We have one paper that's under review right now, another that I'll write over Christmas and get out the door shortly. We've got several more. The, the lab is interested in using functional analysis, act functional analysis in a way that is consistent with and familiar to procedures that we've classically used in applied behavior analysis. So it involves manipulating, establishing and abolishing operations, verbal establishing and verbal abolishing operations to test whether your hypothesis of what is involved in somebody's verbal behavior that's getting is interfering with direct contingency management. Once you've identified with some degree of confidence, yes, this functional analysis verifies our hypothesis of what the maintaining verbal variables are. Now you're ready to begin act. And I've broken down act into a 10-step task analysis for anybody to follow. If you just follow the, the steps, then you're doing a truly idiosyncratic, evidence-based act that you don't have to be a psychotherapist to be doing, and that is not cookie-cutter. I think one of the, the dangers for applied behavior analysts in general is the proliferation of stock interventions that you can pull off the shelf, mimeograph, and plug and play. That is not in the spirit of applied behavior analysis. Our science is based on idiosyncratic functional analysis and the development of unique treatments for the individuals with whom we serve. Act can potentially devolve into a light form that is cookie cutter, that is plug and play. Mm -hmm. And if I have anything to say about it, it's let's do act in a way that's consistent with applied behavior analysis to help generate effective behavior that is overt, measurable, and socially significant. But to do so, sometimes it's going to require that we address some of these more private behaviors that are interfering with the 
effectiveness of the direct contingencies that you're otherwise manipulating. And when you do that, what you do is you jumpstart the car. I could, I'm just, I think I could sit here for the rest of my day and listen to you talk. <laughs> like, <laughs> mesmerized you like, you really are poetic in the way that you explain tell things. stories yeah yeah wow this is going to be a great podcast and i want people that are interested because i know that you know a lot of our students that talk to us they want to know more and i just want to make sure to send them to like a great place where they're getting proper you know, education on ACT that relates to the behavior analytics side and also understanding that I do know a lot of people in our field especially are, I wouldn't say, I mean, maybe a little closed-minded to having some flexibility in their thinking. And I think this is also good for, you know, not just learning for other people, but learning for yourself. I, 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 what I, everything you've been saying, I'm like, I need this. I need this perspective taking. I need to know that behavior is not the person. That's not, it's just their actions. I'm going through a lot with my family. So a lot of this is practicing, reframing how I talk about the situation that I'm going through, right? And talk about the people that have hurt me in different ways that it's not them. It's, you know, their behavior doesn't define them. That's how they act. And that's, I think, something I'll have to practice a lot but I'm so excited I could learn from you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, I mean, there's obviously so much more I could say, but I, I think I've, I've given you a little, little tiny snapshot of RFT, a little tiny snapshot of ACT, and uh, a little bit of my history, how I came to behavior analysis. And that's actually kind of fun. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do rock. Yeah, You really do you, rock. you covered it all. I, I mean, I know not as deep as it gets, but my brain probably cannot go much deeper without, without losing everything you've taught me up until this point. Like, I got to, like, take this in. My brain's compartmentalized like, with it for a second. And then I, I think I would love if we did another podcast at some point and, you know, could talk. Because now I feel like I have, like, some – I always said when it came to, like, RFT and ACT and any of this, I was, like, you know, on Passover, um, Jewish people, there's, like, one part of the Seder – the meal where it's like talks about the four types of children. And one of the children, it's like one, the wicked child of this, the, the, and then one of them is like the child who doesn't understand enough to ask. And I was like, when it comes to act or RFT, it's like, I don't even have enough of a basis to even know what question to act, to act, <laughs> huh, to ask. But now I feel like I have like a, like a, a little bit of foundation that I could even see in which context to ask the questions to find out more. So thank you so much for that. You're so welcome. And, you know, the way that you just described that is perfect. You said that in this context, I am that child. That's exactly right. And in a different context, you're not that child. You're one of the other three children, right? The wicked, wicked. one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know her well enough to say that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and spending time with us and sharing your amazing brain with everyone listening. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. You know where you could find us. You could find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast, our website, behaviorbitches.com. 
go over and reach out to us. We love getting messages from you, whether you know someone who should be a guest on the show or you are that guest. And go ahead and head on over to wherever you listen to your apps. If you do happen to listen to your podcast on Apple Podcasts, since it's the only platform you could leave a five-star review, go ahead right now, drop whatever it is you're doing, pull over if you're in the car and leave a five-star review. And if you have nothing nice to say, don't leave it at all. As always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard, because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Today.